as we come to the end of our series, This Same Power. It's not just the end of this particular series, but it kind of comes to this, the end of this type of uh, kind of marked time in the church calendar year. So unlike um, our regular calendar, which begins in January and has those major holidays like Valentine's Day, uh, Mother's Day, um, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, the church calendar kind of goes to a different rhythm, kind of invites us to be in the world where we're not so shaped uh, by consumerism and materialism, a world that starts, or a year that starts with Advent. And so um, kind of to my left, your right, was the first, um, our first series, The Way in a Manger, where we marked Advent. And here at, at Oasis, we start that and have for years now with the hanging of the greens, which is a very traditional non-traditional service. Uh, We then go from Advent into the time of Christmas itself, uh, the 12 days of Christmas, which is actually what we titled the series at Christmas this year. And then from um, Christmas into Epiphany, uh, which is marked by the baptism of Jesus. And we did the series Aha Moments, where we have our own kind of epiphanies or aha moments with God. That time is then followed by the season of Lent, so we're kind of wrapping around the sanctuary and coming back around. And so uh, Jesus, with his kind of eyes downcast and with the crown of thorns, kind of marks that that season of Lent where we set things aside to prepare ourselves to then celebrate later the resurrection. Uh, As Paul would say, um, we kind of know Christ in our sufferings. He is one who suffered. And so when we suffer, we can know him a bit more. Uh, We all know that um, those of us who have suffered uh, know it's difficult for someone else to connect to us when they haven't suffered at all. Um, And so this time of of Lent, we had a series called I Quit, uh, things that we would quit, like we kind of would set aside, uh, those things that would not be kind of conducive to living the life of Christ which then brought us into this, uh, this kind of uh, season of Easter, um, which we have been going since Easter through Eastertide. We've been in this series, This Same Power. And then today is Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost Sunday kind of ends this time of the calendar year, and it ends our series, and we have this last icon. Uh, so again, thanks to Josh who drew them. Uh, thanks to uh, Kevin O'Brien who kind of colored them. Uh, thanks to Ted Smith, who built the frames. Uh, thanks to uh, Greg, um, Hannah, who kind of lit them. Uh, thanks to Carol Naga, who kind of curated it all. Um, I was going to say thanks to me for something, but I didn't really do anything. <laughs> but um, and I enjoyed them. How about that? I can, be, I can be one of you. So we do talk about a lot about the arts and about creativity around here. Um, uh, some of us in the world aren't so creative. Maybe you felt that sometimes. You know, say, man, Oasis talks a lot about creativity in the arts. I'm not so creative. Look, you don't have to be creative. Um, maybe you can just enjoy somebody else who is, right? I'm that person, right? I don't cook. But if you cook well, listen, I can be your friend. <laughs> right? If you love to cook, I love to eat. Match made in heaven. If you're a good musician, right? I can't play. I can't sing. But look, if you like to play and sing and you like people to appreciate it, I appreciate it. Once again, match made in heaven, right? So it takes uh, different strokes for different folks. And um, 
we can all make that work. So today, as we kind of conclude our series, This Same Power, and as we celebrate the day of Pentecost, uh, the title of, of the service today, the title of the sermon, is The Power, This Same Power to Unite. Um, so as I think most of you know, I self-identify as a Pentecostal. Um, been a Pentecostal all my life, kind of born into it. Um, and though I grew up uh, in a form of Pentecostalism uh, that was uh, somewhat different, um, somewhat um, extraordinary in some ways, we call it Appalachian Pentecostalism. We're, we're a, bit, a bit extreme. Uh, ironically, uh, growing up as a Pentecostal in a Pentecostal church, uh, we never celebrated Pentecost Sunday. I, I remember when I was older, someone said it's Pentecost Sunday. And I'm like, well, every Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> what are you talking about, Pentecost Sunday? That's a day? That's, like, that's a day in our calendar, like, like Christians? I mean, I, I had read, you know, in Acts 2, it said, and when the day of Pentecost had come, this event takes place. I didn't know what that was. I thought, I thought in some ways we had named the day Pentecost because it was the start of the church, not thinking that it was a regular holiday uh, for the Jewish people. So if we were to back up uh, just a bit, um, Pentecost, uh, the original one, um, was a celebration of, of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Uh, the Jewish festivals kind of celebrate a couple of things. There's always some kind of agrarian celebration, uh, celebration of kind of food, which once again, I'm, I'm down for that. And then there's a celebration kind of spiritually of something that's going on. So there are three major holidays, three big holidays in the Jewish calendar that are kind of coupled with a pilgrimage. Like if you can, you would kind of take off work and travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Uh, the first is Passover, the second is Pentecost, and the third is Tabernacle. So Passover um, kind of celebrated the birth of the nation. You're familiar with the story of, of Moses versus Pharaoh. Uh, perhaps you've seen the Prince of Egypt or uh, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston or Gods and Kings. Um, at the moment, I can't remember who played in that. Christian Bale plays Moses. Um, so you know, you know that story. And there were the ten plagues. And the last plague was that the, uh, the eldest child would die. And so they put this kind of blood of the lamb on the doorpost. So when the angel of death would come, it would pass over right? That household, Passover. So Passover is kind of like the birth of the nation of Israel. I mean, prior to that, uh, they were slaves, and prior to that, they were just a family, and a family doesn't quite constitute a nation. I mean, I've, I've heard some families act as though their family is a nation, right? We don't do that, you know. What else don't behave that way? <laughs> like, what in the world is that supposed to mean? <laughs> as if this is some major people group. Um, but yeah, God gave Abraham a promise that I'll bless you and I'll, bless, I'll make your descendants into a great nation and through them I'll bless the world. So we're in Genesis and we really just have a family. But then hundreds of years later, we do have these kind of descendants and, and now, um, but they're not quite a nation. I mean, they don't have any land. In fact, they're slaves. So a group of slaves does not equal a nation, right? So that's promise yet to be fulfilled. But then God calls Moses, uh, Moses does his ministry, and the people are delivered. They go through the Red Sea, right? They have the Passover, they go through the Red Sea. It's kind of like their birth. Don't want to kind of, okay. 
stretch that uh, metaphor too far. But then um, <laughs> 50 days later, uh, seven weeks later, um, they find themselves at Mount Sinai. And they, so sometimes it's called the Festival of Weeks, seven weeks, seven days in, in, seven, in a week. So that's 49 days. So after the 49 days, the Festival of Weeks, they have this big celebration, right, on the 50th day, which is, uh, that's what Pentecost means, 50. So it's the 50th day, and we're kind of celebrating that God comes down on the mountain, and God gives Moses the law, and they kind of make this covenant, right? I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and this is how we'll roll together, right? Uh, Cloud by day, fire by night. And here's the rules of how we'll work. So they're going to be a mobile nation, right? Not quite, not quite a nation that has a land uh, just yet. Interestingly enough, we're going to come back around to that eventually, but remember that. They're kind of a nation without a land. Interesting concept. So um, the rules get laid out then, not just the Ten Commandments, kind of those kind of top rules, but then the rules get laid out as to how the tabernacle should be constructed. So the tabernacle is basically a tent uh, that you can take down and move uh, when necessary. And it kind of represents the, the, the place of God, the place where people would come and worship. Kind of a great thing, really, to have, to have a, a, a place of worship that's mobile, right? You don't have to go to some particular geographical location uh, to worship because our God is the God on the move. And if God moves over there, we can pack up and move with God and not be kind of tied down to such a place. And so the tabernacle, which kind of gets laid out in Leviticus, becomes the way these people would worship for like a thousand years, right? Not quite, but close. Like a thousand years, these people group, they eventually move into a, to a land and they kind of break up into tribes and then the tribes come together into a single nation um, and so they have King David, who's kind of the king over all the tribes, but he still just has a tabernacle, right? The place uh, where they go to worship is still just a tent. Now, for those old school Pentecostals that are still in the room, you really should be feeling this because, you know, we, we followed them around in tents, right? And they had these kind of sawdust and, you know, they passed the mic down the way. Woo, little tent, tent revival. That's kind of what I thought of growing up when they talked about the tabernacle. I said, I know what this is, like a tent revival. <laughs> but eventually, I guess we, we get respectable enough or settled in enough, and we can kind of move past the days of, of uh, having a tent, and we want a building, right? We don't want to have to tear up and tear down every time. And for those who have been around Oasis a long time, you all say, amen, <laughs> right? <laughs> It is. It's nice to have a building. You don't want to have to tear up and tear down your set every week. And so this is what eventually happens with the Jews, right? So King David's like, I want to build you a house, God, not just a tent. Right? I'm, we're tired of worshiping a God who only camps out. We want, we want to worship a God who lives in a permanent place. And God's like, nah, you know, you killed a lot of people. I don't really know if I want somebody like you building my house. Ouch. Thanks, God. So he says, um, that's not for you. But his son, one of his many sons, but one of his sons, Solomon, would build a temple. And we call this the temple. <laughs> it's the first temple. And it's the, at any given time, the Jewish people would have only had one temple. 
Like there wasn't a time when they had like a temple in Jerusalem and a temple in like Tel Aviv and a temple up in Capernaum and a temple over in uh, Beit Shan. No, they, they would only have one temple ever at a time, and that's in Jerusalem. And Solomon builds it, and that's where they start to worship God, right? This is where they come to meet God. This is where the Spirit moves. This is where... The, the Spirit of the Lord is present, so thick that it's like smoke, right? They come, they come here to see God. But um, as, as uh, history would unfold, the Jewish people would have difficulty kind of obeying God in the way that God kind of wanted to be obeyed. Like, hey, we had this covenant. I was going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Except now you're over here worshiping these other gods. Like, foul. <laughs> you know, once... Once you're, once you're in the relationship, you're not allowed to kind of back out and kind of get into relationship with these others. That's, that's kind of uh, out of bounds. And so they don't really respond very well, right? And so um, judgment comes, consequences come, uh, when they start to break the covenant and break it a lot. So uh, they had divided, right? Which sometimes happens when covenants get broken. And, and then the, the northern kingdom got destroyed by the Assyrians. And so uh, now we just have two tribes left. That's all we have left, two tribes. We had 12. And now they're still kind of breaking the covenant. And so God sends a prophet and says, look, um, his name's Jeremiah. Um, God's going to come, and, and you're going to be judged. And, and the people say, oh, get out of here, Jeremiah. Who let Jerry in here anyway? We... We can't be judged. We have the temple of the Lord. We have the temple. I mean, this is the most, this is like God on earth, right? This is the manifestation of the presence of God, the building of God, the house of God, and we have it here in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah gets all um, mad. <laughs> something else there. Um, and he says this. It's kind of funny. Uh, it's funny after the fact. It probably wasn't funny in the midst of the argument. He goes like this. He goes, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. You, know, you can keep saying this until you're blue in the face. It doesn't make you right with God. Like you can say I'm a Christian. You can say I believe this. You can say I believe that. But if, but if we live in ways that are unfaithful, if we live in ways that are inconsistent, if we live in ways that kind of break the covenant, there, there is no physical thing we can hold on to. You can't say, well, I've been baptized. You can't say, well, I, I speak in tongues. You can't say, well, I don't speak in tongues. There's nothing you can do or not do that's going to make it all right if you consistently live in a way that's unfaithful in the relationship. Temple of the Lord. I imagine he said something like this. Look, if I hear you say temple of the Lord one more time, it's going to make me vomit. Look, you can make T-O-T-L t-shirts. Temple of the Lord. You can have uh, TOTL bracelets. You can have TOTL bumper stickers on your chariots or your donkeys. <laughs> and it's not going to do you anything. God's not that impressed. You know, say, hey, God, I thought this was your system. You set something up and we're trying to practice it, the sacrifice. He says, yeah, but the way you live doesn't smell like sacrifice anymore. It just makes me sick. I'd rather you not do it. Obedience is better than sacrifice. 
So the Babylonians come, and the temple is destroyed. So temple number one, gone. Now, the Israelites aren't so much Israelites anymore. They're, again, just the, the Hebrews, the Jews, because they've been taken out of the land, and they're in captivity in Babylon, like modern-day Iraq. Yeah? And so they're in captivity, and it doesn't look good. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes them a letter. It's, uh, it's, it's real encouraging, kind of. They're like, man, how long do you think this is going to take? How long this is going to last, Jeremiah? You know, how long in the timeout chair? I think we called it the timeout chair in a, in a sermon a few years ago. How, how long are we going to have to be over here? And in his response, he says to them, why don't you go ahead and build a house and plant a garden? <laughs> yeah. Ouch. Build a house and plant a garden. I thought maybe we were going to kind of get through this and get back home. So uh, God eventually does send someone. He sends a, a Persian, so that would be like modern-day Iran. Imagine Iran overtook Iraq. <laughs> don't, don't imagine that. Um, but anyway, a Persian, his name's Cyrus, he comes and he overtakes the Babylonians, and the Jews get to go home. You know, happy day. So when they get home, of course what they do is they rebuild the temple, right? Because they want a house for God. And we call this... Uh, in, in scholarly circles, anyway, we call it the second temple, <laughs> right? Because we already had one. So the second temple was built by uh, Zerubbabel, and it was a. It wasn't quite as grandiose as Solomon's, right? It wasn't so much like a cathedral. It was more like a Sears warehouse that had been remodeled. <laughs> but in any case, it was still the second temple. Uh, it's funnier depending on how long you've been here. <laughs> um, so they built the second temple, and things are going along pretty good, you know. Um, they're responding to the prophets, and they're kind of rebuilding the city, and they're like, whew, hope we don't make God that mad again, <laughs> right? And then uh, we enter this kind of period in, in the history of, of um, our, our faith, uh, sometimes called the intertestamental period. It's the in between the Testaments, in between the Old and New. And some bad things happened then. There was a Syrian king who, who came and desecrated the temple, we say. He, he mistreated it. You know, Jews um, ate kosher, so that meant like no bacon, no sausage, no ham, no pork chops. Um, right? They didn't own pigs, didn't touch pigs. And the Syrian king went into the second temple and sacrificed a pig to a Greek god. That's, that's like bad news if you're Jewish. So it started a war, a revolt, led by a guy named Judas, and uh, they won. They, they fought for three years, and they won. And so they came into Jerusalem, and they, they had a rededication service. They're going to dedicate the temple back to God, and that service is now called the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. So... If you have any friends who are Jewish or had a friend in school who was Jewish and same time you're celebrating Christmas, they're celebrating Hanukkah. Yeah, did anybody? Or you might, might, might know if you're of a certain age, Adam Sandler's uh, Hanukkah song. It's also a, a holiday classic. So yeah, that's, that's the celebration of the rededication of the temple. Rededication of the second temple, right? Because there's only been two. So it, doesn't, it didn't get destroyed. It just got 
kind of defamed, right? And so they cleaned it up, they rededicated it. We're still in the second temple, though. So it would have been the second temple that Jesus would have been taken to as a baby, right? And when, when he was uh, dedicated, or uh, we say dedicated, circumcised. Um, it would have been the second temple that Jesus would have went to as a 12-year-old. When you get that story in Luke's Gospel, and his, his parents is headed home, and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? And oh, no. We left him at the gas station. You know, had to turn around the minivan and get back and, and find him. And he's at the temple. Same temple. It had been the same temple that Jesus uh, kind of got all upset that one time. You remember the story? He turned over the table of the money changers and those who bought and sold pigeons. And he wouldn't let anybody carry anything through. Uh, we call it the cleansing of the temple. It's a very gentle name for what Jesus was doing. don't think he was looking to clean it up. So Jesus then kind of prophesies the destruction of the temple. And sure enough, the temple gets destroyed. It gets destroyed by the Romans. That was the second temple. Until this day, there's not another temple. There have only been two Jewish temples ever. One built by Solomon and destroyed by the Babylonians. One built by Zerubbabel and eventually destroyed by the Romans. And so now the temple's gone. There is no temple. So one question might come to, come to bear. Um, what do we do about that? Like, do we need a third temple? There are some people on the planet who are trying to build a third temple. Problem is, there's already a sanctuary where the third temple ought to go. It's called the Dome of the Rock. You might be familiar with it. So uh, good luck to them, or maybe not so good luck to them. I'm not sure. But if you went to the temple to worship God, if you went to the temple to get forgiveness... Jesus seemed to think that the worship of God and forgiveness was available elsewhere. As he walked around Galilee, he would say, your sins are forgiven. And somebody, you know, some religious leader, some professor at a Christian college probably, <laughs> said, foul, you can't say that. And then he would say, uh, rise up and walk. What do you think about that? <laughs> Which is harder to say. So he's been forgiving people's sins left and right. He's been celebrating the coming of the kingdom. And so apparently Jesus' very existence made the temple redundant. And then he would say to other people, look, you can worship there, you can worship here, but wherever you worship, you worship in spirit and in truth. It's this kind of domestication of the temple. It's almost like a move back towards tabernacle type of living when it's on the go. And it's not like Jesus was the first person to do this. About 100 years before Jesus, there's a very popular rabbi named Hillel who said to his disciples, where two people read and obey the Torah, God is with them. So God can be with us if we're just reading and obeying the Torah? It's already this kind of movement towards um, a more geographically diverse way of worshiping God in the world. This brings us uh, into, the New, into the New Testament, and in particular, um, the Apostle Paul. There's an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he's writing, and apparently there are some people in the early church uh, who are behaving badly. And when I say behaving badly, uh, one guy's committing incest, and others are going to prostitutes. Like, at one point, Paul goes, even the pagans know this is wrong. 
So, so you guys need to shape up. And as he's talking about it, he says this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of the body of Christ? Your, that's your plural, so I'll speak in my southern uh, colloquialism. Y'all's bodies are members of Christ. So do you have your little uh, Lego person? Anybody? Yeah. So imagine this is your body. So all of us, right, have a body. And all of our bodies are members of the body of Christ. So we have bodies, but our bodies make up the singular body of Christ. And he'll talk about this later again in, in chapter 12 when he's, when he's telling us how to treat one another. He says, like, the head can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. The eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you. Right? Because the body is the body. I mean, for those of you who've, who've suffered any uh, physical pain yourself know that if one part of your body hurts, your whole body hurts. Right? You get a headache. You get a migraine. You can't do anything else. And you get a backache or you, you get a kidney infection and, and, you're, and you're wasted, right? It affects the whole of you. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. It's only a couple of verses later or in verse 19. So from verse 15 to verse 19. Then he says this. He says, do you all not know, same phrase that he said, do you all not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He says, do you all not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, our English translations here fail us just a bit because it might sound like that the body of Christ and the temple of the Spirit is the same thing. Like, our bodies are members of the body of Christ, and then our bodies are uh, temples uh, of the Holy Spirit. As though there were multiple temples. Like, there's a temple, there's a temple, there's a temple, there's a temple. My goodness, there could be 150, almost 200 temples in this room. There is no self-respecting Jewish rabbi, Pharisee, of which Paul was one, right? Paul's a Pharisee, Jewish rabbi, who would refer to a plurality of temples, right? There was only ever one temple, well, one temple at a time anyway, right? There was the temple of Solomon that had been destroyed, and then there was the temple of Zerubbabel that had been destroyed. But there is no concept in, in Jewish theology of multiple temples. There is but one temple, and it is the temple of the Spirit. So, um, I don't know if any of you still read the King James, uh, but it can be helpful. Uh, the, the helpful part about the King James is that it distinguishes between a plural you and a singular you, kind of like you and y'all. Um, when the King James was translated, um, at that time, uh, formal English only had a, a single word for you that was used for the singular plural. But in the vernacular, just everyday folk, right, they wouldn't say uh, you, they would say thou, if it were singular, and ye if it was plural. But thou and ye was to that time what y'all and you guys is to our time. It, it, was, it was vernacular. It was common speech. But the, but the translators of the King James, when they read the New Testament, realized that it was written conversationally, so they tried to translate it conversationally. 
It's just ironic to us that we were in the King James. It sounds formal, um, but, but it was not intended to sound formal. It was intended to sound informal, which I'm sure it did to the original readers. But this, enough with the English lesson. Um, but this is how I think if I can read those two verses together or translate them for you, it goes something like this. Did y'all not know that y'all's bodies, we all, and we all have one, are members of Christ. But did you also not also know that y'all's body, that is the body of Christ of which we're a part, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So it's as we come together that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's collectively that we form the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now what, do, what am I saying what I'm not saying? I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is not within us all. But I am saying that to function as the temple is something that we do collectively. And not just Oasis, but all the churches in Lakeland. And not just all the churches in Lakeland, but all the churches in Florida. Not just all the churches in Florida, but all the churches in the globe, around the globe, in the world. We come together. Now, I don't want to be overly critical of the tradition in which I grew up. But I do want to say this. Sometimes we talked about Pentecost, about the Spirit, as though it was something that separated us. It separated us between the haves and the have-nots, the ones who had done something and the ones who had not done something. And that, my friends, I think is not the work of the Spirit. I think the Spirit is that which comes and holds us together. The Spirit is the Spirit of life, the Spirit is the Spirit of creation. The Spirit is the Spirit that sustains and holds us together. Pentecost is the inverse of, Babylon, of Babel, right? In Babel, our languages are confused so we don't understand each other. In Pentecost, we have a confusing language that nevertheless pulls us together. If you've ever traveled, traveled internationally, sometimes it's nice to hear somebody else speak your language. You're like, oh, they're one of us. And then, so it is then for speaking in tongues when properly understood, I think. It's like, oh, they must be one of us. And it's not just the language that they speak, you see, because they all heard in their own dialect. They all heard in their own language. So it doesn't matter what physical language it's spoken in, but so much as to what's being said. The mighty works of God is what they heard. And so when we hear the mighty works of God, whether we hear them in English or German or Spanish or French or Italian or Dutch or Afrikaans or Arabic or Aramaic, others that I can't seem to think of at the moment. But it is interesting to me that in Acts 2, when it was listing the number of languages that people heard the mighty works of God in, on the list is Arabic. English didn't make the list. But Arabic did. So there were people there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost hearing the mighty works of God in Arabic. That should give us a little cause for pause in how we look at the world. I, uh, I was teaching at a Bible college in Puerto Rico a number of years ago, and one of my students was a good bit frustrated with me because I don't know Spanish. And I, I'm like, I know Spanish. I, could, I can tell you what anything on Tapatia's menu means. Um, 
so I asked him, I said, um, I said uh, you know, you don't have to uh, speak Spanish in order to go to heaven. He's kind of huffy. Because I said, you can learn it when you get there. What, what I hope Pentecost can mean for us, I hope Pentecost can mean for us that we understand that the Spirit is working to unite us together. That the Spirit speaks the language of love and mercy and grace. That the Spirit communicates to us what the first paraclete, the first advocate, Jesus, communicates to us. That God loves us. Right? So that when we hear about the other, a Pentecost should drive us to think about love and service. Who will we meet who is not created in the image of God? Who will we meet that God does not love? Who, we, who will we meet that if they're not already a brother and sister in Christ might not potentially become a brother and sister in Christ? The power of the Spirit is the power to unite. The word power, uh, dunamis in Greek. Uh, some people say it's like dynamite because I guess dynamite eventually has an etymology in the word dunamis, except that that's exactly not what the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't blow us up. The Spirit holds us together. And the Spirit brings us together in a variety of ways, but certainly in a worship service is one of those ways. We come here to practice unity so that we can live out the rest of our lives in unity. So... um, Sometimes we just have to reach out. We have to reach out to the other. We have to reach out to the other in radical ways that's more inclusive than what we're comfortable with. You see, Moses said, love your neighbor. I get it. Muhammad also said, love your neighbor. It's in your Koran. Go read it. Jesus said... You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. But I say, love your enemy. I'm not saying it's easy. I am saying it's what Jesus is calling us to. It doesn't come natural to me either. I'm I'm an arrogant elitist by nature. But I serve Jesus, and I seek to follow the leading of his spirit. And so I seek to stretch my hand out to my enemy and say, you too are special. The power of Pentecost is the power to unite us together. Though we be of different race or different gender, different age, different nationality, different socioeconomic background, different educational levels, whatever, to come to the table, partake at the table, receive the forgiveness and love and grace and mercy of our Lord with full expectation that you will now become an agent of love, grace, and mercy and forgiveness in the world so that the world might know 
it's not us or them, but it's us for them. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask the outside um, sections to move. Heavenly Father, we love you. And Lord, we come to the table of your Son and our Savior today. On this day, the day of Pentecost, celebrating the gift of your Spirit. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would be poured out upon all of us. Change the way we speak. Change the way we act. May we be agents that unite your people together. In Jesus' name, amen.